0: And Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Arlene Tuckman. She is a professor of history at Vanderbilt University specializing in the cultural history of medicine. Her most recent book is Diabetes, History of Race and Disease. The book traces the radical shift over the course of a century in beliefs about which populations were most likely to develop diabetes, from Jews in the early 20th century to Native Americans, African Americans, and Hispanics today. I'm joined by 15 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, I'm in Freeport, Maine, and uh, I may have already
1: reported this uh, last week. Uh, we're trying to get our local municipality to uh, allocate $75,000 for uh, heat pumps and other electrical stuff, and uh, it's touch and go with the council, and
2: uh, they're meeting next Tuesday. We'll find out how we're doing. Hemp uh i'm originally from new york and boston since 1978 i've been in nashville arlene uh i, I attended uh george peabody college for teachers uh, which which was then taken over by uh, uh vanderbilt in a in a very curious racial incident going ongoing incident and uh um i'm a i'm a clinical psychologist here and uh uh, this is also the home of mahari and various other places uh, that do a lot of research on <coughs> on the same areas you're into and uh, I went to a uh, doctor up the street for a while. Uh, he was a black graduate of of mahari and my my wife still goes to him and he spends a lot of time sharing his frustrations with her that she takes care of herself and and uh, his clients are, poverty and maybe uh and and working class and maybe uh 80 of them are are uh, black and he's he's frustrated that people don't take better care of themselves and, and he's always ranting about that to her um peter grilly is my name i
1: originally from new york but grew up and spent about half my life in japan um i was class of 63 originally at harvard but um Left for a couple of years and graduated in 65. And I'm particularly interested in today's talk because my doctor keeps telling me that I have borderline diabetes. Um, But fortunately, I haven't displayed any symptoms yet and I don't, and I feel fine. Bill Collins grew up in the Boston area, Harvard 63, Navy 20 years, bunch of Navy stuff in the background here, I just noticed. (laughs) <laughs> and then uh, worked for Westinghouse for a while. Then the Savannah Riverside here, nuclear and chemical and hazardous waste disposal. So background on nuclear energy, really, and energy generally. And uh, living here in Aiken with my wife and three children elsewhere.
3: Nick Bancroft, uh, class of '63, <clears throat> as most of the other guys are. Then uh, uh, Peace Corps in India for a couple of years, and back to Boston, and. Uh, Trust, wills, investments, that sort of thing. I grew up in a place called Cohasset, Massachusetts, south of Boston. And next door, this is age seven or eight or nine, something like that. There was a a really nice guy living next door in a small cabin. And he, I was told, had diabetes. And I was also told that this was a shame because he could never marry. And uh, that Mm -hmm. still comes to my mind from time to time every time I hear diabetes. Good morning. Uh, Jerry Secundi. I'm in Pasadena, California. I grew up in segregated Washington, D.C., class of 63, then went to law school, Peace Corps, Department of Justice until I met John Mitchell, and then I quit. Uh, Then worked for, (laughs) uh, long story on that, then worked for an oil company, then worked for Audubon, California, then for the state, then for a nonprofit, and I'm still doing environmental work.
4: Hi, John Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, still recovering from COVID. I've had it for two weeks, Mm -hmm. Uh, feeling pretty good. All three of us have it here. And uh, other than that, i retired from editing and writing. I will say when I was on the New York Times uh, national desk, we had the, the head of the copy boys was a guy about, at that time, 60 years old named Marty. I can't remember his last name. He was a real character, and uh, he was an old Jewish guy, and he would say sometimes when he was berating the copy boys, uh, my people uh, had diabetes where your people were running around in the caves of Europe.
5: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Marcy. I'm I run Clean Air Campaign and its Open Rivers Project in New York City, uh, which advocates fairer, (laughs) wiser public spending priorities. And I'm organizing an invaluable archive and seeking recommendations for the right paid archivist. David, David Othmer,
1: ah, David Othmer. I grew up in Central and South America uh, when. I'm a classmate of these guys at, at Harvard and went to, went to the business school and spent most of my career in broadcasting. And I was station I was a director of broadcasting at WNET in New York City and station ma- manager of WHYY
6: FM and uh, TV here in Philadelphia, where we live. George Jones, also class of '63, I, like John, I'm also in Ann Arbor, and like Peter, I hey. have been. Told that if I don't lose 15 pounds, diabetes may be on the horizon. It's always been hard for me to lose weight, and now that I'm almost 81, it's really hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
6: George George Allen.
1: I, I grew up in Omaha. I also in class of '63, but I got really bad knee playing house football, uh, which was football at Harvard intramural, but. Uh, Played uh, uh, carelessly uh, by a lot of guys. Uh, I have, uh, I live on the west side of Los Angeles. I've uh, been borderline, I guess, diabetic for as long as I can recall. My last A1C was 5.1. And I combat that by uh, being fairly dedicated to riding a bicycle, which I I uh, try to do uh, four or five days a week, and uh, I keep my bike, computer, in metric rather than imperial measure. Uh, and I do uh, about uh, 3,000 kilometers a year. It's better to do it that way. That way you're going faster and you get more of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay,
3: all right. Thank you.
0: well
3: uh, Alden. Yeah, I think I've solved this uh, technical problem. Okay. Anyway, I'm just south of San Francisco, and uh, my daughter actually runs a diabetes clinic and a Native American health clinic in Reno, Nevada. All right.
0: All right. And Professor Tuckman, thank you so much for joining us and uh, tell us about your book, your life, and your work.
7: Okay. <laughs> um, in that order. In uh, <laughs> <any
0: order.
7: laughs> um, So uh, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, New York, uh, in Bensonhurst, and um, uh, went to college uh, in Southern Vermont, uh, graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I've lived twice on a kibbutz in Israel, um, lived for five years in Berlin, Germany, and uh, never in my life thought I would end up in the South. But I've been at uh, Vanderbilt since 1986 and um, raised my family here. I've got two stepkids, uh, another child that I gave birth to, and um, uh, three grandchildren and a fourth on the way. And um, I'm one of those blessed grandparents. Um, My grandchildren live, uh, depending on traffic, uh, between 35 minutes away and 50 minutes away, and um, my stepdaughter lives close by, and um, my, uh, I had, I had a, my only biological child when I was just shy of 44. Um, he is finishing his last year at Haverford in Philly. I know one of you mentioned that's where you live, and um, And then uh, he's going right into a graduate program at Penn. So he's going to be up in the Northeast a little bit longer, but he shocked us um, by telling us that he's actually thinking of settling in Nashville. Um, I was convinced he's the child who would end up on the moon. Um, (laughs) So uh, I'm glad that he's thinking of uh, staying close by. Um, So, um, I need to say, given how many of you um, have diabetes either in your life now or pending that uh, I'm not an MD, Um, I don't think you want me to give you any medical advice because um, it would uh, be probably based on what um, physicians recommended 50 or 100 years ago and um, that would not be smart. I do wanna say that um, my colleague, uh, he's at Hopkins, Jeremy Green, who knows a lot about the history of diabetes as well, um, has written a wonderful book called Prescribing by Numbers, um, where he um, really uh, zeros in on the, this odd place that we are in medicine where you feel fine, like I've told my husband, I'm not. I'm going to stop going for my annual exams because I feel fine, and every time I go, they find something wrong with me. Um, <laughs> and that's that is exactly what Jeremy um, uh, engages with. So how our diseases now? We're being prescribed, whether it's medicine or or lifestyle. <clears throat> based on numbers rather than uh, how we feel and he talks about the that that historical development so he'd be a great person to follow up with um uh after our talk today so i was finishing my last book the uh, history of diabetes and race is my third book i was finishing my last one and i was um just thinking you know what do i want to write next And um, my other two books are not on the history of disease. One is a biography of a woman who trained as a midwife in Germany, and then came to the States in the mid 19th century to get an MD because it was the only place where women could uh, get an MD. And, um, and then my other book is on the history of medical education in Germany. So, um, but I've long been interested in the history of disease, and I was thinking that that's what I would like my next book to be about, and right around that time, my dad decided to move to Nashville, because my son, um, at that point, he was two, my dad was 82, and that was his only grandchild, and so he decided to move here. My dad had been diagnosed with diabetes when he was 65 years old. So in 1985, and his doctor, um, he didn't go to an endocrinologist. He went to uh, his internist, what we called Mm -hmm. a GP. Um, And his doctor just assumed that he had type two diabetes because my dad was pretty short on a good day. He stood about five foot, three inches tall He weighed 150 pounds, and that put him in the overweight category, um, which was a risk factor, and his age was a risk factor. But it turned out that the doctor was wrong. Um, It wasn't until my parents, at that point, they were living in New York, but they retired to Florida um, about a year and a half after my dad got his diagnosis, and he saw an endocrinologist there who realized that what my dad had was LADA, was latent autoimmune diabetes of adults, which is a slow progressing form of autoimmune diabetes, where the pancreas eventually stops producing adequate insulin. By that time, my dad weighed 115 pounds. So hmm. he had lost like 20% of his body weight. From the moment my dad received the new diagnosis, he began injecting insulin four times a day, which he did until he died in 2013. So my dad never, and I think largely because of his age, um, but also because he always liked routines, um, he never tried any of the newer technologies. so he died one month shy of his ninety third birthday, and I always have to add it was two weeks after um his only grandchild, my son, was bar mitzvah and I am convinced to this day that he willed himself to um live that long and um and he did for those of you who have ever been to a bar mitzvah he did one of the um alias and it was very moving um And um, yeah, he he really was fine until he wasn't the way I want to go. Um, So this diagnosis really intrigued me, as did being around my dad, because I hadn't been anywhere, lived anywhere near him for most of my adult life. And being around him and learning more about the really baffling nature of this disease made me think that diabetes would be a great book to uh, a great topic to uh, write about. So I started reading what was available on the history of diabetes. and, And I learned very quickly that most of the works were about type one, what I grew up calling juvenile onset diabetes. And that is the form of diabetes where you are immediately insulin dependent. Without insulin, you will not live long. So I thought, what would it look like to write a book about uh, about type 2, which I grew up calling adult onset? It took me a few years, maybe even a little longer, to realize that even asking that question was anachronistic because the different types of diabetes were not really distinguished officially until the late 1970s. Now, everyone realized from the moment they noticed diabetes, everyone realized that it mattered if you developed the the disease when you were young. If that were the case, the prognosis was far worse. So they realized that, that age mattered in terms of the prognosis, but they were convinced that they were dealing with the same underlying pathophysiology. So at that point, I realized I was just writing a book on the history of diabetes. I wasn't writing about a particular type. Um, But what really grabbed me and made me decide to write this book was when I learned that over 100 years ago, diabetes was considered a Jewish disease. And that was so different than what we were being told in the early 2000s and actually This is um, a change that began in the mid 1980s, what we were being told about which populations were most at risk. So by the mid 1980s, and certainly what I was hearing in the early 2000s is that the populations that are most at risk are Native American, African-American and Latinx populations. And so at that point I was hooked because that's the kind of change over time that really grabs me as a historian. How did we get from a Jewish disease to a disease of Native Americans, African Americans and Latinx populations? So I worked on this book a long time. Um, The um, main uh, argument of my book is that there has been a very long history of using race, and to some extent, class, to explain health disparities in diabetes. And um, that uh, what I want to emphasize is that race, in my title and in my book, is not code for Black. Rather, it refers to a number of different racialized populations, which at some point in the past were labeled most at risk. Of developing diabetes. So the the first chapter in my book, and my book is organized largely chronologically, but since each chapter is about a different racial population, I finished the story of that population. So it's loosely chronological. So the first chapter is about when diabetes was a Jewish disease. Um, The second chapter is about diabetes being a disease of middle-class whites. The third chapter is about the invisibility of diabetes in the African-American community in the first half of the 20th century. And then the next two chapters take the story to the post-World War II period. The fourth chapter is on um, the discovery of diabetes on Native American reservations after the war. And then the fifth chapter is about the continued discovery of diabetes in several other racialized populations in the 1980s. And that's what I mentioned in the beginning. So the discovery among um, uh, African-Americans both in the South and the North and and then uh, largely Mexican-Americans. What I show is that the focus on race has meant that the dominant approach to explaining disparities has been to look to biology and behavior. So to blame genetics and um, lifestyle for high rates of diabetes, which has made it difficult to give more attention to structural inequalities, to structural racism, and basically to social determinants of health, that is to really grapple with the role of racism and poverty in making people sick, and thus in producing differential disease rates.
4: Um, Arlene, did you, uh, do you know when they started calling it, or stopped calling it sugar diabetes? Because when I was a kid, and on into teens and later, people always had sugar diabetes. And as my anecdote, the implication was with Marty at the New York Times was that it was a disease of people who were living um, more higher culture and enjoying things and eating desserts and good foods. And therefore, it was a you know, he in his joke. It was a sign of sophistication and civilization and advanced, you know, advanced society, advanced culture. So what was going on there?
7: So I tried so hard to find references to sugar diabetes and um, and I was not able to. Um, hmm. I'm pretty convinced that, um, from other work that I've read, that that was, um, more common in African-American communities to call it sugar. I have, I've got sugar. Um, yeah. I did not find that, um, uh, I did not find that, um, uh, but what I did find is that diabetes was considered a disease of, um, It it was counted as one of the diseases of civilization in the first half of the 20th century when it was a disease of middle class white people and um, and of Jews. Then it was considered to be one of the diseases of civilization, Mm -hmm. um, which is, um, you know, it is it is the case. That the populations that saw a, uh, a rapid decline in mortality rates from infectious diseases were populations that had more resources. And so, in the, the first, the last decades of the 19th century, the first decades of the 20th century, the, um, the, the, the diseases of civilization were the diseases that those groups could develop because they were living long enough to develop the diseases of the elderly. Mm. Uh, And so there was this link. It was diabetes. It was cardiovascular disease, um, even to some extent cancer. These were diseases that those with resources um, would develop, and and they were white, and they were middle class.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, Jerry? My father was white and Jewish. My mother black. Uh, We have no diabetes on either side of the family as far back as we can possibly go. Uh, a little bit of gout from rich living, perhaps, but that's that's really about it, so I haven't had a chance to read your book. My question really is, is there any correlation really between race and diabetes, or is it simply lifestyle, diet, overweight, et cetera
7: yeah, so um, so one of the disclaimers that I usually give is that um At least historically, it's not possible for me to give a definitive answer because the statistics just aren't reliable enough. And so my book is really a cultural history of diabetes. Um, um, I can say that no one doubted. I mean, it, it really floored me. No one doubted in the early 20th century that Jews had the highest rate of all the populations, not even Jewish physicians. Um, at the same time, they all said the statistics aren't really reliable. So it's not like I'm playing Monday morning quarterback. They talked about how the statistics were often based on who came into the doctor's office, right? Because if you think about you know, who's collecting the statistics, um, a lot of times it's physicians. And so who do they see? Um, so I can't tell you whether there's any truth to that. Um, If we look in more recent times, then um, there's no doubt that um, Native Americans, Americans, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, that they have higher rates of diabetes as a population, right? I mean, the fact that there's no diabetes in your family is, well, first of all, I wanna say mazel tov, Um, but, you know, if a population has a greater um, susceptibility, it doesn't mean everyone's gonna get it. Um, So there's no question today that there are these health disparities, but the really important question is why? And, um, And the answer is not either nature or nurture, because the most compelling research to me Um, today is showing that we have to explode that division because racism or all the isms that target certain populations, they produce when you live with that kind of prejudice and when you are forced to navigate structures that, are, have, that for, for decades, centuries have been created to make it more difficult for some and easier for others, that actually takes a toll on you physically, physiologically, chemically. And so that's why a lot of people today, well, I wish it were more, are saying that instead of looking at how race influences health, we should be studying how racism influences health because racism makes people sick. Anti-Semitism makes people sick. Um, And so is there a correlation? Absolutely. Is it lifestyle or biology? Yes. (laughs) Because, well, I don't want to say the lifestyle or, but, but is it necessarily in someone's genes? No but it is biological, and racism is contributing to that. The Jewish physicians who in like the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s were acknowledging that diabetes was a real problem for their population, their solution was, was to get rid of anti-Semitism. They were convinced that when they would live in a society without anti-Semitism, that their nervous system would calm down. And it was believed that diabetes was, um, was affected by the nervous system. So if they could calm down their nervous system, they would see a reduction in diabetes rates. What, what, I'm, what I am saying is that, um, I mean, I don't get to the gym as often as I should. And I have no obstacles that are preventing me from getting to the gym. Um, That when we focus on lifestyle without also taking into consideration, whatever obstacles might exist to make it difficult for people to make healthy choices that, you know, we're not going to be successful. So, someone who is um, who has diabetes or is borderline, who goes to the doctor and the recommendation is, you know, you need to um, eat differently. You need to exercise more. Um, If we're not also paying attention to sort of obstacles might be preventing them from making those choices, then we're not going to see an improvement. So, you know, do they live in a food desert? Um, are they the primary caregiver for children and parents? Do they even have the time to exercise? Uh, where can they go? Is it, can can they walk in their neighborhoods? Um, what kind of stress are they dealing with at their jobs that might make it difficult for them to come home and put on a pair of sneakers? I mean, I just think that if we're not looking at the environmental, social, political, cultural, racial context, then, you know, we can prescribe all we want, but the rates of diabetes are going to keep going up. Because the biggest thing, and I know uh, someone on the call talked about um, that their daughter is... um, providing care on a Native American reservation. And one of the very popular explanations is that um, Native Americans have something that is called a thrifty gene. And um, that leads to these high rates. So there, there is still this tendency to look at and spend a lot of money trying to uncover the genetic contribution to high rates of diabetes. And and the example you provided me would be a beautiful example of why that's not necessarily the way to go.
1: Mm-hmm. Liz.
7: So I guess what I'm, I guess I'm hearing a
8: couple of things. One is I, if this hasn't already been said, I, I think you're probably preaching to the choir here. Um, uh, and the other is what I'm hearing is that you're saying nobody, nobody, nobody has, Proven that there is any significant, um, uh, genetic or biological link, um, since, uh, structural racism, the, the structural factors that you're talking about are, in fact, environmental. Um, they aren't, I mean, they aren't lifestyle. Uh, however, you're talking about environment. And, uh, so what I'm hearing is, uh, nobody has presented a, a compelling argument. For any biological uh, uh, effect uh, to produce type two, Um, and
7: Uh, that's fine.
8: Yeah, no, I
7: wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I would. uh, There's a lot of research that is. I mean, do I think that's where we should invest our money? Is a different question. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot of research that is exploring the genetic um uh, component to the development of diabetes, what I would say is that there is no sound research demonstrating that that breaks down by race. That's what i would say
8: i'm I'm wondering though from what you're saying and i and i again i I would think about differentiating type one and type two here sure. um that i i'm i'm I think I'm hearing you say that there isn't much on the biology side for type 2.
7: No, there there's, in fact, I think there may be more research on the, um, the genetic um, a genetic component to type 2 than there is for type 1. Uh, this yeah, is I'm
8: not-, not talking about research, I'm talking about results. I mean, ha- I, I'm not hearing you say, that the research on the biological side for type two has brought anything that you find compelling?
7: Um, yeah. So let me do another disclaimer. I'm, um, I'm, I'm an historian. Um,
8: so <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a doctor. So I, okay. <laughs> I'm not speaking from a medical model here.
7: Yeah. So it could be that if um, there were someone um with me here who was doing diabetes research, they would be able to answer this more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um uh but I but I will say that from what I know there is um solid research. I mean is is there any is there ever anything really definitive so but I'll but I'll I'll stick my neck out. Um yes they have demonstrated they're they're medical researchers have demonstrated that there is a biological component to type two diabetes, that they can, um, that they have found parts of the genome that do make um, people more or less susceptible to developing diabetes. And And I do believe that the research um, that demonstrates that is stronger for type two than for type one. Of course, type one is believed to be an autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. and I think, looking at this as an historian, that the autoimmune diseases they have become the the you know the the bucket that you throw everything into. A hundred years from now, someone's going to look back and have a great lecture on the time when everything was turning into an autoimmune disease. Um, So so I'm not arguing against a genetic component to any disease. Where I am um, uh, skeptical and and a strong um, activist is in saying that whatever biological um, uh, facts we're finding, they don't separate by race.
8: Okay. That's a very helpful distinction for me. Yeah. Because I wasn't hearing, I mean, I was hearing you say that, you know, race has nothing to do with it. I think what I was, I was over generalizing then was to go off and to, uh, hear you biology. say that biology has nothing no, to do. No. okay so the, those two concepts are are separately. Right. yeah okay. okay i understand okay. okay thank you i appreciate that
6: you're welcome george Al, uh, george jones so i've you may have noticed i've raised and lowered my hand several times right. in the last five or ten minutes and that's because of the fact i'm trying to sort of synthesize all of this in my own mind and i haven't i i haven't succeeded so i'm this is going to sort of be stream of consciousness so okay. it seems to me that part of what the issue is here is actually what do we mean by race so for example blacks not only have higher higher incidences of diabetes they also have higher incidences of all sorts of other maladies like hypertension right. i don't know whether that's true for for jews Latinos and Native Americans are not. But if it's not, then again, the question of genetics becomes even, I think, more important and and perhaps significant. I've just started reading a book called The Genetic Lottery. I don't know if you can, if this is going to show on the camera or not. It's by a woman. It's called Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. I just started. I haven't finished it yet. But my guess is that what she's gonna say she's she's a developmental bi- behavioral psychologist yeah. my guess is that what she's gonna say is that genes matter more than we think they do
7: okay do, can you look in the index does she have epigenetics in the index
6: yeah I, I don't even have to look in it she's actually okay. I, she's already okay. even in, okay. in what I've read she started talking about epigenetics
7: okay all right so um
6: and so. so- Oh, I didn't say this me. in my introduction. I'm a biologist so I know what that means.
7: Okay. All right. So um so this is where I would say that race matters because because racism matters. And that's why I was I was saying that the most exciting research and I guess this is what she's talking about is the mm-hmm. research that's exploding the distinction that I grew up learning and if you're a biologist then I'm sure at some point, maybe only in college, maybe they abandoned it by graduate school, but you did the nature versus nurture. And, um, and, and so if it's the case that that racism actually has an impact on people biologically, And if we move away from the model of DNA that I grew up learning about where, um, you know, the DNA was the DNA and it was never affected by anything that was environmental. If, if, If that's your model, then this doesn't work. But what epigenetics is demonstrating, and again, I'm not an expert here, but my understanding of epigenetics is it is showing how the genes are actually can actually be changed not only through mutation but in direct response to environmental pressures so if that's the case then then we are dealing with a situation where the where people where the genetics of individuals are being altered by whatever environmental stressors they're being exposed to so you know okay genes matter but but what's our solution going to be are we going to be looking to altering the genome as a way of solving our health problems or are we going to work on creating a just society so that the color of one's skin doesn't inform the stressors that, that one is exposed to, or whatever other category, you know, that, that leads to an uneven distribution of resources.
6: So suppose both of those approaches actually turn out to be both feasible and viable. Are you arguing that we should, we should not employ the former
7: If you could demonstrate to me that technological solutions, I mean, give me one example of where we have made it affordable. No, that's not fair. You probably can come up with one example. Um, Most technological solutions are not evenly distributed. I mean, if we even look at all of the amazing ways that Um, people with diabetes can now manage their disease it's phenomenal Um, with all of the glucose monitors and who has access to that I mean so many people can't even afford insulin so you know I just think that if the goal is an equitable society we can we can have our utopian um, well they're both utopian aren't they um, but you know, we can imagine a better world where everyone has access to the medicines and the technologies that will allow them to live long, healthy lives. But that's not the way it it it, it works. I gave a talk to health educators um, in uh, Greenville, um, South Carolina, a really depressed part of this country. Um, a Maybe three weeks ago, and um, uh, I was the only historian. I I gave my talk, and then I thought there was going to be a meet and greet with me. But the meet and greet was um, staged in a at, in, in a place where they were doing a trade show with all the new medicines and and apparatuses that are available for, um, people with diabetes and no one came to talk to me. (laughs) They just wanted to see the latest gadgets.
2: Like, like George, I'm trying to synthesize what you're saying. And I, but I I can't blame you for my synthesis. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I, I think class is a very important part of this. And, uh, uh, I boil it down to two things. If you if you have potato chips and Coke for breakfast, mm-hmm. uh, you're you're a lot more likely to get uh, uh, diabetes. And secondly, what I what what I think you can be incredibly helpful on is as as successive waves of immigration have occurred here, and and some groups of people have have moved up through the social strata, has, has their types of uh, has their diabetes diminished has it uh uh uh, how has it been changed for example if if you look at east european jews right who 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 came here more more impoverished than 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 the earlier jewish waves uh uh and they've gone up through the society has their has their amount of diabetes been been reduced
7: yeah so um so the, the, the problem, the reason I can't answer that question is because the statistics that we have about incidents of diabetes in the early 20th century, they're just not reliable enough. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what most intrigues me. So I also, I participated in a conference, uh, I, I zoomed in on diabetes and stress. And again, I was the only historian. Everyone else was doing research on diabetes and stress. And, um, and, and I find this really fascinating because um, the, the 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 main explanation for why Jews had high rates of diabetes in the early 20th century was because they were such a nervous people. I, whenever I just think of Woody Allen, I mean, that's like I, I can't get him out of my head when I think about like your stereotypical nervous Jew. Um, and they had a whole, medical explanation for this, I was alluding to it earlier, that, um, that diabetes was, um, triggered by, um, by a labile nervous system.
4: (laughs) Neurosthenia.
7: Linked to neurasthenia, which was also considered to be an upper class, um, a middle and upper class white disease. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, So there was this notion that um, the Jews had high rates because because they experienced more stress. And the reason that was given in the early 20th century as to why rates were low among African Americans and Native Americans was because their nervous system was not as developed, and therefore they did not stress as much. And, And that was just a Straight out of the scientific racism that was rampant in the early decades of the twentieth century.
4: Yeah, so that's why David Eastman thought that we would uh, that the last Negroes at Harvard wouldn't do well academically. Oh. <laughs> Remember Kent?
0: Yeah, right,
4: right, yeah.
7: Because your nervous systems weren't.
4: You we were, yeah. You're not intellectually developed enough to.
7: Exactly. That's That's exactly. That's exactly the lineage. Yeah. Right. So uh, so. um you know, the idea that um, stress, the fact that stress is getting a lot of attention now in diabetes research, you know, I, I'm tempted to say, so there's something they were understanding 150 years ago. I mean, not for reasons that I would, for different reasons, but there is something about the, about diabetes and stress. So if that's the case, then that I mean if there is something to this, then what we do know is that when populations immigrate to a new, I mean, like the Ethiopian Jews who went to Israel, right? They they experienced very high rates of diabetes. And all I can say is I'm I'm as intrigued as the next as to whether Stress is a way of possibly explaining the um, shifting diabetes rates in um, migrating populations.
0: Well, Arlene, what were you going to tell us about uh, marriage and diabetes?
7: Yeah, so this fits with everything that we're talking about here because um, so there were these um, public health films that were produced in um, like right after the war and there were World War II, and there were several about diabetes. And there was one, was Wendy Hills, the name of the star of this um, film from, from the United States Public Health Service. And it was all about um, the fact that even if you have diabetes, if you're managing it well, you can get married and have children. I mean, this is what they thought was important to communicate But the star of this story, I mean, this is also part of the um, uh, focus on nuclear families and domesticity that really um, took off after World War II. Um, As the men came back from the war and um, there was a desire to get the women, you know, to leave their jobs and go back to the homes and move out to the suburbs, which only white people were allowed to do. But the whole point of this film was that Wendy Hill, if she takes care of her diabetes, can get married. And what I argue in my book is this was one with, a, um, with an argument that, um, and this was part of viewing diabetes as a disease of civilization. And Jocelyn, who I, I realize I'm not finishing my sentences because I've, I've got like 10 different arguments coming into my head at once now. But Joslyn, there's the Joslyn Diabetes Center in Boston. He was probably the most famous um, di- diabetes specialist in the first half of the 20th century, not only in the United States, but also in Europe. He argued that people who have diabetes should be reproducing because they have all the traits that we want people to have and pass on. I mean, this was the 20th century, early 20th century eugenics. So Wendy Hill, you might have diabetes, but get married, have babies. Just make sure that you do it with the advice of your doctor. But I mean, he, I've got a line from him in, in, in my book who where he's, you know, he says something like, if we don't want them reproducing, then who is it that we want reproducing? they've got everything else going for them. They're smart, um, they're disciplined, right? Because if they weren't taking care of their diabetes, they'd be dead. So, I mean, it's, yeah, my chapter on on, on whites and diabetes is all about eugenics and how that um, became in, in, entwined in the conversation about uh, about diabetes. That blew my mind when I found that. I mean, there were people at the time who were saying that insulin was not a good thing because before insulin, if you had diabetes, you either died before you reached reproductive age or you um, had trouble conceiving. And they thought insulin's not a good thing, as and they were against some other chemical hormones as well, because they allowed people to survive. Into their reproductive ages and reproduce. And Jocelyn was saying, no, 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 no. No, no, I'm a eugenicist, but we have to be careful who we're applying eugenics to. You got to get my di- you gotta get my diabetes patients out of there. They're wonderful. We want them to have babies. Wow. Yeah.
0: It's amazing.
7: Yeah. Blatant. So that's why I like history because it's like in your face. But today, if you want to find it, you have to, you know, you've got to, you have to dig a little deeper.
0: Wow. Wow. Uh, Marcy.
5: um, But diets change also with migration. And um, in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is very, very mixed, um, it seems to me blacks are overrepresented in health food stores and our mayor, Eric Adams, is a big health food pusher because of his own diabetes. So I, I think it's more complicated than, you know, going, calling an impoverished neighborhood a food desert. The question is, isn't diet very important also? And don't diets change? depending on a variety of factors
7: yeah no absolutely no I, and you know and again I diet matters lifestyle hap- matters I mean all these things are clearly important in terms of um, uh, extending life and quality of life I mean absolutely um, and not everybody has the same access i mean new york everyone has access to grocery stores period mm, maybe not <laughs> so yeah. maybe 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 it's changed right um but but there are there are food deserts i mean i don't know does new york city have food deserts uh a healthy food yeah. yeah
0: i think some neighborhoods do yeah
2: yeah, yeah.
7: okay well so what, the,
0: what what are you working on now? What's your last question? What's your future? What what do you what's tell us what's next?
7: Um, well, my future is to uh, retire in about a year. Um, and um, I'm really looking forward to that. I just made that decision. Um, so I am now working on uh the history of addiction. Um and um What I'm interested in is um, the history of how, of the resources that were available to families who had um, uh, someone in their uh, their close circle who was struggling with addiction. So there's a lot of work on um, uh, the history of addiction looking at the disease. There's a lot of work um, on the history of addicts. A lot of addicts have written memoirs. I mean, going back in time, um, but I have not really uh, come across anything that focuses on the family. Um, so, um, so that's what I'm doing. I hope to take it back to the late 18th century. We'll we'll see. Um, I started working on this uh, during the pandemic, so I wasn't able to get to archives. Um, I've found a fair amount of stuff online, but um, but not enough to um, to allow me to see a book yet. Um, but since I'm going to retire in a year, this can take as long as I want. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's where my heart is right now.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank that's you very delightful.
7: much. Delightful. Thank you so much thank for you. inviting me. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: That was Arlene Tupman. She is a professor of history at Vanderbilt University, specializing in the cultural history of medicine. Her most recent book is Diabetes, History of Race and Disease. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcast also streams to your computers and smartphones on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.